Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Today is the day that I've been waiting for for a long, long, in fact, I have been being so patient because I've wanted to, we've wanted to start this series for a long time now. Uh, we've wanted to, we've been talking about it for a long time now. Uh, we've wanted to, we've been talking about it, I wanted to start this series kind of at the beginning of the year. We just kept being patient and, and praying for the right time and the right moment, and that moment has arrived today. And so today we're starting a brand new series called Irresistible. Okay, irresistible. This is a powerful, it's going to be a powerful series. It's by, it's based out of a book that, that our pastors and some of our leaders have been reading by the author Andy Stanley. If any of you are uh, book reader, Christian book readers stuff, a lot of you know who Andy Stanley is. Uh, his dad is Charles Stanley. He's one of the most uh, prominent, uh, one of the top uh, authors and pastors really in, in our generation. And so he wrote this book and it's really in, in our generation. And so he wrote this book and it's really a powerful, powerful book. And he steps out with some of the most powerful teachings that I've ever heard. And really this book becomes a roadmap to reclaiming the new that Jesus unleashed for the world. And that right there is just a powerful, powerful statement. And when I say that, in church, we don't really catch that because we're trying to figure out exactly what that's talking about. But reclaiming the new. Jesus came to bring something new to the world. And, and really, throughout church history, we've kind of lost that new. And so we're going to talk about that today. But in this book, <coughs> it's really a, an awesome, powerful book. I dare you to read it. Dare, a double dog dare you to read it. Um, but in this book, he starts off with this story, and he says that he and his son Andrew were going on a father-son trip with another father and son duo, and they were headed to China to go on this trip. They go to China, and while they're there, they, got, they had the opportunity to tour an American leather factory. So they go to this leather factory. This is back in 2005 when this happened. They go to tour this leather factory, and uh, the owner of the leather factory insisted on being their tour guide. So they got together, and they were getting ready to start the tour. About that time, a young Chinese girl joined them, and the owner introduced them and said, today, if it's okay with you, she's going to shadow us. She's just going to hang out with us. She's one of our managers. They come to find out she's in her mid-20s and had worked her way up in this company to a pretty big management position. And so she was just there to tag along and go on this tour. So they go on the tour, and about two hours later, they end up back in the owner's office uh, of this factory. They're sitting there, and they're, they're doing basically a debriefing of everything they just saw. And the owner asks them, he says, does anybody have any questions, anything you'd like to know, what you've seen? And they were like, man, this is awesome. We, just, we loved it. It was great. And they just kind of sat there, and all of a sudden, the Chinese girl raises her hand. And they were like, 
oh, okay. So you have a question. You actually work here, but, you know, okay. And she says, she looks at Andy Stanley, and she says, are you a pastor? Now, at the moment, he says in the book, he says, I was kind of taken back because I'm in China. I wasn't there for a missions trip or anything. I was just there on a trip with my son, and, and I wasn't sure how to respond. I wasn't sure if it was okay that I was a pastor. And he said, so I had sat there for a moment, and then he said, yes, I am. As a matter of fact, I am. And then she asked him this question. She looked at him, and she said, how good is good enough? He said, wow, now I'm shocked. Because he had just published a book and it had just come out called How Good is Good Enough. She asked him this question, how good is good enough? This book was just published, but it was actually based on a message that he preached several years before that. And he just looked at her and she said, well, let me explain. She said, several years ago, someone gave me a CD of your message that you preached. How good is good enough? And she said, I've listened to that message over and over and over, and I have given my life to Jesus. I have asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And she said, and before I was empty, but now through Jesus, I am full. Wow, isn't that awesome? What a great story. And he's just kind of taken back and blown away. And then she says, you know, I've, 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 God, I try to go to church, but the closest church to my house is about two hours away on a bus, so I can't go to church. It's really difficult. She said, I've looked all so I can't go to church. It's really difficult. She said, I've looked all over where I live, and, <laughs> and I finally found an apartment complex that has a Christian Bible study in one of the apartments, and so I go to that as often as I can. And so she explains all this, and she says, but pastor, I do have one more question for you. And he says, okay, what is that? And she says, why doesn't everyone in America go to church? Wow, what a great question, huh? Now, how do you explain the marginalization of the church in America to a Chinese millennial who was empty, but now she's full? Now she's full. She was empty. She met Jesus, and now she's full. How do you explain today, right now, there are thousands of empty churches to a girl who would be there every time the door is opened if there was actually a door to open? Wow. As you look around today, it makes you wonder, why isn't everyone in America going to church? Her question, he writes in the book, he says, her question really bothered me. And this morning and throughout this series, I hope this question that she had bothers you too. Why doesn't everyone go to church? Why is the church so resistible? Have you ever thought about that? Because Jesus wasn't. And at one time back in the day, the church wasn't either. But something's changed I've talked to and I've listened to, I've read interviews and read blogs all about people who've left the faith. You know, you work with people, you have family members that, that you've talked to, and you know a lot of people who have left the faith, but rarely have I ever talked to someone who has abandoned Christianity based on anything directly related to Christianity. 
Have you thought about that? It's usually about the church or somebody hurt me or the pastor or people and all kinds of things. In fact, I recently read an article by a former worship leader who says that she left the by a former worship leader who says that she left the faith when she read a book proving that the Bible is full of contradictions. Apparently, she grew up believing that the foundation of our faith is based on a non-contradicting book. But it's not. One of the most renowned Christian scholars of the world recently said that he lost his faith due to suffering in the world. But the foundation of our faith is not a world without suffering. Suffering doesn't disprove the existence of God. Suffering just disproves the existence of a God who doesn't allow suffering. Right? So the existence of God is, I mean, our God allows suffering. He actually promised it. He promised that we would have suffering. Natural selection doesn't undermine the claims of Jesus, neither does a 13.8 billion year old universe. But if something I said in the last few minutes has made you wince just a little bit, then you are in the right place. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Welcome to the exchange. <laughs> Throughout this series, and listen, 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 Linda. Linda, listen. <laughs> My, I showed my son Parker that video, and we say it all the time. Now, every time he gets, listen, Linda, Linda, listen, honey, 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 you want pop out on your, anyway, you guys got to be more spiritual. Y'all messing me up for a minute. But <laughs> throughout this series, I pray over the next six weeks, and actually, this is going to take us, we're going to end this series Easter Sunday. I, if you can, be here. This is going to be so powerful. Next week, the, the message the, the going into this series is going to be a brand new agreement. And uh, we really want you to be a part of that. But you're about to be introduced today and throughout this series to a better, more robust version of your faith. To be clear, this is not a new version, and it's certainly not original with us, but it's been hidden in plain sight in the Gospels and the epistles of Paul, and we know that it works because it has already been working. But it goes like this. Once upon a time, the members of a Jewish cult called The Way, against all odds, captured the attention and ultimately the dedication of the pagan world inside and outside the Roman Empire. Now here's the question that we have to ask with all of this. is How did, and think about this, how, how crazy impossible this seems. How did a religious cult birthed in the armpit, a religious cult birthed in the armpit of the empire, whose leader had been rejected by his own people and crucified as a wannabe king of Rome, survive in the face of such overwhelming resistance? How did it hang on? How is that same upstart religion, that same upstart religion would eventually be embraced by the very empire that sought to extinguish it? Wow, what was it? What was it about that? So what did the first century Christians know that we don't know? What makes our gospel so 
resistible? What makes our church so resistible? What made their version of our faith so compelling, so resilient, so irresistible? So, how did Christianity survive the first century? It should have been buried along with its founder, but it wasn't. In fact, if you think about it today, if you go to Rome, Rome is adorned. There's crosses everywhere. If you go to Jerusalem today, Jerusalem is going to be packed with thousands and thousands of Christian tourists who are there to see the history and and all the stories that they have grown up believing and preaching, and, and they're there to see that. But over 2,000 years ago, the cross symbolized power and the power of the empire. But today, the cross symbolizes the power of God. So how did that happen? How could it happen? So to reclaim the clarity and irresistibility of the church, we have to come to terms with something that's probably a little bit difficult for some people to understand. Not everybody, but some people, maybe this is a little difficult to understand. But we're gonna break this down as we go. But Jesus came to introduce something new. Okay, everybody say new. He came to introduce something new. He didn't come up suggesting a new version of an old thing. He didn't show up to update an existing thing, but Jesus was sent by the Father to introduce something new, something brand new. And this is really a powerful thing that the church needs to kind of get back to and understand we need to reclaim the new that Jesus was trying to unleash when he came to this earth. It was the new that he came to introduce that made him and it practically irresistible. People who were nothing like him liked him. He liked people who were nothing like him. The unrighteous people loved him and adored him. But to the self-righteous, but To the self-righteous, he was always a threat. In fact, if you grew up in church, you know that the most prominent narrative in the Gospels that we find is this constant, constant, constant conflict between Jesus and religious leaders, right? I mean, we've all known that. If we've grown up in the church, you see that in the Gospels constantly, that Jesus and the religious leaders, they just didn't mesh very well. And it's really impossible for us to wrap our head around it. We look at these religious people. When we, <laughs> I grew up this way, maybe you didn't, but I did. When, when you hear the word Pharisee and sad, there used to be a song. I can't even remember how it goes, but uh, all the Sadducees are sad, you see. Y'all remember that? Never mind, never mind. But when I hear the words Sadducees and Pharisees, I immediately think words Sadducees and Pharisees, I immediately think negative, eh, bad, bad people, you know, excellent, right? A lot of you think that way when you kind of hear Sadducee, Pharisee, but the thing is, they were the good people. They were the religious people. They were the ones trying to keep the law, trying to keep order. So then Jesus comes in, and we, it's hard for us to really fathom why they hated Jesus so much. 
They hated him. They despised, in fact, they didn't just hate him. They wished him dead. They didn't just wish him dead. They orchestrated his arrest and his execution. That's how bad they hated this man. That's really hard for us to wrap our mind around. I mean, that, that really seems a little bit over the top, right? It seemed over the top to Pilate. They saw something that we've missed. See, they're justified in their hate. Oh, Pastor Jed, you don't go there, buddy. They see something that we've missed. They didn't see Jesus as Judaism 2.0. They rightly understood him to be a threat to everything, as in everything that they valued. Everything that they valued in their life. If what he claimed to say was true, if what he was saying was true, then it signaled the end of, not a new version of, but the world as they knew it. If he's right in what he's saying, it's oh, two thousands and thousands of years of everything that our, our ancestors have taught us and that we've learned and that we grew up, that we have believed, that we have taught, that we have preached, that we have proclaimed, that we believe with all of our heart is gone. If this guy, what he's saying is true, everything about our history and our past is wrong. It's gone. So now do you get it a little bit? One of these Pharisees and these Sadducees. See, to us modern Christians, we see Jesus as an extension of or a fulfillment of Jewish scriptures, which is our Old Testament. But Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, they didn't see him as an, ex as an extension or a fulfillment of anything, of anything. From their vantage point, Jesus was introducing something new, and they were correct. He was. One of the most offensive statements that Jesus ever said to them, especially, was recorded in Matthew's gospel. And if you've ever read it, chances are probably you just skipped right over it because it didn't really get to you. It certainly didn't offend you. You probably weren't bothered by it. You didn't even notice it. But Jesus is having one of his many, many squabbles with the religious people. And this is over a violation of the Sabbath. And Jesus, while he's referring to himself, he says this in Matthew, while he's referring to himself, he says this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. Get this. He says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Wow. Can you believe he said that? Infuriating, right? No, not really. See, because it doesn't mean the same. It doesn't weigh the same with us. It probably doesn't just send you in a tailspin right now. Because it, you know, it doesn't hold the same weight. But to them, for first century Jews, nothing and absolutely no one was greater than the temple. The temple, well, if, in fact, if anyone was greater than or something was greater than the temple, then everything about the temple was wrong. It was useless and pointless. So nothing could be greater than the temple. The temple was it. In fact, the temple was the center of their, not just their world, it was the center of the world. It was the epicenter of religious Jewish life. 
The temple was everything. It was the official. Now, have you ever like bought a, a jersey or something that's kind of knockoff cheap and, and you know you get it for cheap, but do you always look for the official jersey of the NFL or the official jersey of the NBA, whatever it is, the official, like you know, when the Houston Astros won the World Series, you're looking for the official uh, you know, World Series and all that. See, the, the temple was the official house of the law. The temple was the official representation of the presence of God. The temple, that's how big, and to compare oneself to the temple or to even suggest that anything might possibly be greater than the temple would reflect extraordinary arrogance, ignorance, and to a lot of people, even insanity. So do you get what Jesus is saying to proclaim that he's greater than the temple is crazy. It's crazy and it sends these religious people just freaking out. So to proclaim that anything was greater than the temple would imply that possibly the temple was temporary. Which turns out that that was exactly Jesus' point. Jesus was trying to prove a point that the temple was temporary. In fact, and we're about to hit this, in fact, the temple was never even God's idea. He never even wanted a temple. And this represents the first major departure from the storyline which most of us grew up with. But to support this really ridiculous theory that I'm bringing up this morning, we have to go all the way back to Abraham's days after a brief layover with King David and his son Solomon. So we're going to go back and we're going to fly through uh, the, the Old Testament just a little bit so I can hit this point with you this morning. As you probably know, it was never God's intention for Israel to ever have a king, right? A lot of you know that, okay? Uh, God only saw himself as the king. He was the only king that Israel ever needed. <coughs> but all the other cool kids had kings. All the cool kids were doing it. All the cool kids had kings. And so the leaders of Israel... The elders, they got together and they confronted the prophet Samuel and they insisted that he appoint them a king. Please, 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 we want a king. We want a king, we want a king, we want a king. Everybody's got a king. Please give us a king. Do y'all have kids like that? Please, 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 can I have a king? Can I have a king? We need a king. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 20. This is their words. They said, then we will be like all the other nations. Uncle Samuel, and with, all, with a king to lead us and a king to go out before us and he can fight our battles. Please, 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 we want a king. But of course, God didn't intend Israel to be like all the other nations. As a matter of fact, God planned for Israel to stand out from all the other nations. God had something different. God had something planned through Israel on behalf of, of all the other nations. From the beginning, God had a global purpose. Now listen to this. 
for the nation of Israel. God's global plan was first revealed in 2000 BC when God promised Abraham a son who would eventually become a nation who eventually through that nation would bless the world, the entire world. I'm gonna say that one more time. Abraham, God tells Abraham, he promises him, you're gonna have a son that son will somehow turn into a, na- a whole nation, and that nation somehow is going to bless the entire world. Whoa, that's a global plan. It's a great global plan. Good planning, God. Here's what God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. He says, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Everybody, everybody on earth is going to be blessed through you. Now this sounded really, 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 really ridiculous to a man who had no people standing in the middle of nowhere with nothing, but there's something else unusual about this promise. God promised to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. Now, back in the, back in the day, ancient tribes didn't generally bless each other. They conquered, they plundered, they enslaved each other, and not a lot has changed today, if we're honest, We don't typically, other nations, bless one another. We typically spy on, negotiate with, and post sanctions on. So not a whole lot has changed. But the point being is that we can't imagine how crazy ridiculous this promise seemed to Abraham. But as you know, Abraham eventually had a son who turned into some people and that people eventually migrated to Egypt and eventually they began to multiply to nation status, which made the host nation really, really, really nervous. But instead of kicking them out, Pharaoh just decided to enslave them and put them to work. And if you can imagine, it's probably really hard to bless all the peoples of the world when you're sitting there making bricks for a king who believes he's the, the king of the world, you know, the man, the king of the universe. But unlike Egypt's God, Abraham's God was mobile, okay? So when Abraham's God got good and ready, he taps Moses on the shoulder as his representative, sends him into Egypt to speak to Pharaoh, and gives him the famous line that we all know, say it with me, let my people go. Like four of you are paying attention, that's okay. Let my people go. Like four of you are paying attention, that's okay. You can go back and listen to this later. Listen to it later, you'll catch up. Some of you are thinking about your Facebook post, and did I even spell that right? But anyway, oh, let my people go, something like that. So, so Moses marks in, marches in, stands in front of Pharaoh. Our kids in kids' church, uh, if you have kids back there, they had been learning this because I've been hearing it uh, a lot. But uh, he says, let my people go. And after a little bit of arm twisting, 
Pharaoh did just that. You probably know the story. Israel eventually arrives safely in the promised land. But once they arrive in the promised land, they didn't do a whole lot of blessing to the uh, nation that was there, to the inhabitants there. They actually conquered uh, and they plundered a little bit all their way to dominance. So there wasn't a lot of blessing going on. Then after several generations of operating loosely and, and crazy, uh, they formed a, a group and they decided that it's finally time that we get ourselves a king. We need a king. This is when they go to the prophet and they beg him, we want a king, we want a king. All the other kids have kings. And so Samuel does that. He anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. As you probably know, Saul was a disaster. Uh, most of the kings of Israel were disasters. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of good things happening there. But these royal disasters, they cost the nation of Israel a lot of things. They cost them treasure. They cost them in blood. But at least they were finally like all the other nations, right? As you know, David follows Saul as the second king. And one day, it dawns on David. Hmm. All the other nations, all the other people had kings. We now have a king. And all the other cool kingdoms have temples. We don't have a temple. Hmm. We need a temple. All the good nations have temples. This wasn't God's idea. This is David's idea. I think we need a temple. All the other king kingdoms have temples. These kingdoms that I've fought against and I've destroyed, they have temples. I need a temple. We need a temple. And so he comes up with this. Now he, he needs a temple. And God, up to this point, had kind of been like a Boy Scout, okay? He had been living in a tent. It was a really nice tent, but nonetheless, it was a tent. And the Old Testament refers to this tent as the tabernacle. But just like Israel didn't need a king, neither did Israel need a tabernacle. They didn't need a temple. They didn't need either for the same reason. They already had a king who could not be contained in a dwelling made by man. Okay? They didn't need a king. They didn't need a temple. They begged for a king, so they got a king. They now decided, David decided, now we need a temple. God didn't have a plan for either one of those. Remember, they needed a temple, and, and David started thinking about it, and he goes, oh, yeah, 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 we need a temple. But their temple was going to lack one of the main ingredients that every other temple had, and that was an image. All the other temples had an image, <coughs> had an idol, had something representing their God in the middle of that temple. And they're going to have this temple with no image because if you remember, Yahweh, which is Israel's God, had no physical representation, no physical image. We know that the temple wasn't God's idea. It was King David's idea, and, and he introduced this to God. Here's how God responded when King David brought up the idea of a temple. God responds through the prophet Nathan. He says this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. 
He says, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. He reminds David that I am the mobile God. I move from place to place. I'm not bound by time and space. I move around. But here's the best part. Listen to this, verse seven. He says, wherever I have moved with the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house made out of cedar? Did I ever, did I ever once say to anybody, hey, don't you think it's time that you build me a house? I mean, do you not see me as a greater God than all these other nations? They all got temples. Don't you think you should build me a temple? This is God responding through the prophet Nathan. And he says, I've gone with you. I've gone and done everything with you. And have you once ever heard me bring up the temple situation? In other words, God was fine living in a tent. In fact, he kind of preferred it because it was a visible reminder that he was not a regional God like all the other gods, but he was a mobile God. He was a mo. He could move from re- just ask Pharaoh. Pharaoh saw it firsthand. But there was something else in play here. Everything about the tabernacle was temporary. It was constructed primarily of linen curtains and goat hair and wood. It was in constant need of repair. Now put this. I want you to get this this morning. The portable and temporary nature of the tabernacle actually underscored the point of the tabernacle. Everything about the tabernacle and everything connected to the tabernacle was a sign that pointed to something greater, something grander in the future. The tabernacle was a means to an end, and in the end, the need for a tabernacle would also end. It wasn't necessary. It was meant to be temporary. So God was fine with his temporary setup. He was fine with that. He was fine because he understood that the sacrificial system, hear me this morning, the sacrificial system which they had been living by and everything associated with it was temporary. It was all temporary. In the end, God tells David, he says, listen, you've got too much blood on your hands to build a temple. David doesn't argue. He kind of agrees, but he doesn't give up on the idea of the temple. So if you know the story, David gets all the supplies together, all the resources. He gets everything ready to build a temple so that his son Solomon can build the temple when he becomes king. And guess what? Solomon becomes king. And as soon as Solomon becomes king, the grand construction of this tabernacle begins. And the Bible says 20 years later, it was completed. Now, at the end of those 20 years, Solomon invited God to leave his tent, to leave his tabernacle, and to move in to this great awesome temple. But God 
Ultimately, God did, did move in, but he says something to Solomon that should have sent chills down his spine. It didn't, but it should have. He says that he kind of has this talk with Solomon. It's the before I hand you the car keys talk that you had with your kids. Any of you had that talk with your, or had your parents had that talk with you, right? Some of you not there yet or almost. I had that talk with Jenica when I gave her the keys to her car. I bought her a car, her first car, and I said, listen, here's the keys to your car. Daddy got your car. <laughs> Daddy's good daddy. <laughs> that talk, you know, good daddy. <laughs> you got freedom now to go get me Taco Bell and McDonald's and, and you can do things and all this. And I gave her this talk and I was like, now this is awesome. But if you abuse this freedom, she gone. Right? Y'all, anybody have that kind of talk? You know, like you mess with my, you mess this up. You mess this up, girl. It's over, right? I hope you had that talk with your kids. Some of you are terrible parents. You're, no, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. But, but that's the talk. That's the, the talk. And, and God's talk with Solomon goes something like this. <coughs> Solomon, I really appreciate all that's gone in to this fascinating, beautiful, huge temple. I accept your gift. I will absolutely move in immediately. But Solomon, if I catch you, or my people, but Solomon, if I catch you or my people playing around and jacking around, messing around out there while you think I'm t- safely tucked away in here, then I will burn this thing to, I will tear this thing apart. That's the talk that God basically has. We'll say, if you don't believe me, it's in 1 Kings chapter 9. You can go read it later. Here's a taste of what, what God says to Solomon. In chapter 9, verse 8, it says, This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled, and they will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? So while God was grateful for this beautiful home that Solomon built him, he was not committed to staying there under just any condition. God was ready to demolish and destroy his own house if the people started taking other gods and disobeying the plan that God had set up with them. The temple was a nice to have, but it was not necessary. It wasn't his idea. In fact, it was more beautiful than it was necessary. Think about that. The temple was more beautiful than it was even necessary. Now, when Solomon became king, the Bible says that there was peace in the land. In fact, uh, this might have been a perfect time in our minds and maybe in their minds for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham and bless all the nations of the world. But as it turns out, God wasn't ready and neither was Israel because Solomon had a distraction. He was distracted by women. He had a woman problem. (laughs) He was distracted by foreign women with foreign gods. And the temple talk that he had, the before I hand you the keys to this temple talk that he had with Solomon, it didn't work. And Solomon starts 
<laughs> Along with building Yahweh, his God, this awesome temple, the Bible says that he built many temples for all the foreign gods to keep his foreign wives happy. So how many temples, you ask? Great question, I'm glad you asked. 700. 700, 700 temples. This is the man that we get our marriage advice from. Think about that. 700 temples to seven, for 700 wives who worship 700 gods. Wow. Now listen, to add to that, by the end of Solomon's life, the Bible says that he was, end of Solomon's life, the Bible says that he was right alongside every one of his wives worshiping their gods. Solomon definitely forgot about that talk that said, hey, you don't mess around out there while I'm in here because I will destroy this place. Nevertheless, Israel was in no position to bless any nations, even though there was a season of peace. But by the end of Solomon's reign, Israel actually looked like all the other nations. Whereas Solomon forgot his promise to God, God did not forget his promise to Solomon. In fact, in 587 BC, after a bloody siege, King Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers poured through a breach in Jerusalem's wall, murdering thousands, enslaving even more, tens of thousands, and they tore down Solomon's temple, the Bible says, to its foundation. That's that talk he had. Fortunately, that day, God was at home. God hadn't been home in a long time. Now the temple was eventually rebuilt, kind of. Um, when Babylon fell to the Persians around 538 B.C., Emperor Cyrus the Great had the Jews return to their homeland, and he ordered them to rebuild the temple. And this is funny. He said, you're going to rebuild the temple, only this time smaller. And so they did it. When the foundation was complete, the people saw how not big and how not grand this new temple was going to be. And the older people, the elder people who remembered Solomon's temple and how fabulous it was, they wept aloud. Because this it, it was a representation of how low the nation of Israel had gotten. Man, it had just fallen apart. And perhaps the most disappointing part of all of this text is that when they built this new temple, God never even moved in it. He was done with temples. It wasn't his idea to begin with. But even though God was done with temples, he hadn't forgot his promise to Abraham. So throughout this turbulent period in Israel's history, he would send prophet after prophet after prophet telling the people that he wasn't finished, that, that they were still a nation, that, that he was still committed to his original promise with Abraham. So God was constantly reminding them, I haven't forgotten you, I haven't forgotten you, I still have a plan, I still have a plan. And in the 5th century B.C., the prophet Malachi stepped onto the pages of history 
and his prophecy served as a bookend to what we refer to as the Old Testament. Malachi's prophecy closed up the Old Testament. Malachi let it be known that God was still committed to fulfilling his covenant with Abraham. Israel was still the vehicle in which God would ultimately bless the entire world. That was still the plan. And so speaking on behalf of God, Malachi says this in chapter 1, verse number 10. He says, my name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. And then later on, in Malachi chapter 3, he says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then, listen to this, then suddenly the Lord that you're seeking will come to his temple. Whoo! Man, that's powerful. The messenger of the, the, the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. The end, Malachi turned off the lights, locked the door, shut it, and disappeared into the desert. Okay? It felt that way, right? Because the Bible says that for the next 400 years, Israel didn't have a prophet that they took serious. There was no prophet. In fact, a lot of people believe that God was just silent during this period. That God was just silent. Even though he was silent, he wasn't necessarily still. The Apostle Paul captures this tension perfectly. And he says, when the set time had fully come. In other words, what God was doing was Malachi ended it. He closed up this chapter in Israel's history. He set it up for what God was still going to do. Paul now is writing about it. And Paul says, when God was, had everything and everyone in place. In, in Galatians chapter number four, Paul says this. Now listen, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, listen, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Whoo! That, that, that should make, if you're not an amen or that should make you amen, right? Because what God did was when the time had come, when everything was in place, when God had waited generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation to get everything set in place. And when the set time had come, the Kairos time, the God time had finally come, God sent his son, born of a woman, Born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we all could have adoption into sonship. Is that not one of the most powerful verses you've ever heard in your life? Come on, that God did that. Wow, I love that. With no expected, no expectation, when everybody had given up, when, when the Roman Republic was transitioning to become the Roman Empire... God moved when everything and everyone was finally in place and ready. God moved. 
I love that. I love that powerful, powerful moment. All of a sudden, this carpenter discovers that his fiance is pregnant, who he hadn't been laying with. He didn't know what to do, and all of a sudden, this angel shows up in a dream and speaks this word that a lot of you know. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. This was it. The wait was finally over. God's promise to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham a long, long, long time ago was finally about to be fulfilled. Do you see the timeline here? I know I flew through that, but I want you to get that, that the nations of this earth were on the verge. They were this close to finally being blessed through the nation of Israel. As a part of the process, God would visit the temple one last time, but not as a cloud. This time he would show up as a Galilean day laborer turned rabbi. And a rabbi who would start a fire that neither the empire nor the temple could extinguish. Wow. Wow, God showed up one more time to the temple, this time as a teacher. And what he came to teach was that I have brought something new. I have brought something brand new that everything in the past, everything that you've ever, and it was a bold statement to make. It was a bold statement to make, but he was telling them something greater than the temple is finally here. Something greater than the temple is finally here. And so you have to think about it. Think about it in this way, that today over one-third of the world acknowledges this rabbi as their Lord and Savior. This religion, this startup cultic religion that never should have got off the ground, somehow, somehow the world can praise his name. And they do. I have, I have preached in in, in nations like India and Laos and Vietnam and Haiti. I have watched in, in India when we were preaching in India doing these crusades. I watched the streets. We would go 20, 15, 20 miles outside of town and we would set up in this giant field. People would literally walk three or four days to get to us. We watched them at night when we would load the bus to leave. We would watch them for miles along the side of the road in pitch black darkness walking home. Something about this God is so irresistible. There's something about this new that Jesus came to bring that makes the temple obsolete. The temple's done and gone. It's finished. It was never his idea in the first place. Kings were never, man messed that all up, but God had this plan. And through this plan, it, it changed the world. 
But in light of all of this knowledge, we stand here this morning, and some of you, you got goosebumps thinking about this. So then now, ask that question that I opened this message up with. Why doesn't everyone in America go to church? Why is God so resistible to so many people? Because the church, we've lost sight. We've lost sight of the new that Jesus brought in the first place. We've made it all about us. We've made it all about, about plans and activities. And, they, and we've lost sight of who Jesus is. That he came to bring something brand new. Everyone should see Jesus the way I see him this morning. As irresistible. As irresistible. And when they do... When they do, it's not about people having to get to church because there's something that significant about being inside this church, but there is something significant about fellowshipping together and growing together and learning. And what we're doing is trying to establish something greater. Jesus is irresistible. And there are people in this world who were empty and because of Jesus, now they're full. They were empty, and now they're full. To me, that makes this message simply irresistible. Jesus came to unleash this new, to reclaim this new. And I think for us as a church, as we've been reading this book together, I've read it twice now this year. In 2019, I've read it twice already, and it's a big book. And every time I read it, I get so excited. I was reading it one day, and I just started crying, and I got so excited. I picked up my guitar. I came in here, and I started writing a song because I started thinking, man, I want to make sure that every song that we're singing, we're reclaiming the new. We're not going back and tapping into the old. Uh, you didn't all preach with me. That's okay. But it's important for us that we not mix these theologies. That we understand what the new is that Jesus brought. Come on, stand with me this morning. I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. I, as I pray, I want you to challenge yourself. I want you to dare yourself to open your heart, open your mind to what God has planned for you over the next seven, eight weeks. What is it that God's trying to say to us? Because there's this greater, bigger, more robust version of God that we're trying to tap into. So what is it, God, that I need to, to step out of, out of the way of, that, that I keep continuing to get in the way of, of what you're doing in my life? 
so, so just for a moment, as I, as I pray over you, will you just examine your own life and go, God, what is it? What is it that I need to do that I need to adjust so that I am, I am in a place where I'm ready to receive this? God, I want to make sure that the new that you brought is the center, the focal point of my life, that everything in my life, the response to my wife, the response to my kids and my family revolves around you. Father, I ask right now, Jesus, that that today we see, God, we see this this moment, this message as as you came, Jesus, to, to complete and fulfill everything that the law had established. The word says that, that what priests had been trying to do for generations after generation after generation, you, through one sacrifice, through one sacrifice, you did it all. So Jesus,